Welcome to episode 123 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic, and it's we, you and I were just talking. It's, uh, it's earnings week, so I'm going to highlight and recap T-Mobile's 3Q earnings, and they're quite impressive. I did share um, a little insight on Twitter earlier today. But what really struck me was um, a statistic that they quoted. So uh, in, a, in a recent quarter, they had 1.6 million postpaid net customer ads. That's actually more than AT&T and Verizon combined. And they stayed, it's an increase of 368,000 year over year. So um, very impressive revenue, um, small growth, um, but still uh, moving in the right direction. Um, they reported that T-Mobile for Business uh, reported uh, one of its highest postpaid phone net ad quarters and added more business accounts than Verizon did. So I don't know where they're anchoring that statistic. Um, for our viewers and listeners, you and I and Patrick Moorhead just collaborated on a Forbes article that was posted uh, yesterday. And uh, we encourage if you if you hit um, either one of our uh, uh, Twitter feeds, you'll you'll find a link to that. Um, but we sort of talked about T-Mobile for Business and the, the Ford, you know, looking momentum and some of our insights there. But all in all, um, Team Magenta continues to deliver. Yeah, I think um, I got a, a little bit of a um, preload on earnings, thankfully, but um yeah, I mean, there's really not much here to not like. Yeah. Um, especially in, in in when you consider the, how many of T-Mobile's competitors are not growing as quickly. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be, there are already economic headwinds, in the, you know, the last year or so with inflation. And I think a lot of people, based on the earnings calls I've heard today, uh, lots of doom and gloom in terms of, you know, outlook for the rest of the year and next year. Meanwhile, T-Mobile pretty much seems impervious to it. So um, mm -hmm. I think at this point, we're really looking at um, at a strong T-Mobile that, that positioned itself for this kind of growth with the merger with Sprint. And if you look at the earnings, they actually um, guided another $200 million of extra synergies that they're going to be able to realize through um, the merger, which means that that's another $200 million of profitability um, that they're going to be able to eke out as a result of this, this merger. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think we're going to see a lot more growth from T-Mobile uh, on the business side after our conversation with T-Mobile for business, yeah. but also just like, you know, their network, they said they now cover over 250 million people That's with their, that. with their mid band network, which means that they are getting ever closer to that full 300 million pop, um, and I think that's going to be, you know, that last 50 million is going to be very challenging for anybody. Yeah. Um, and I think 250 million is already quite a challenge. I think Verizon and AT&T are going to take some time to get to that point as well. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that standalone network and the new applications that will come from it will really increase the, the opportunities for T-Mobile to eke out additional profitability from a network that's already fairly mature. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the full promise of 5G being delivered through standalone. And um, I expect that uh, that will only enhance what T-Mobile for Business is, uh, is working on. But again, 
um, it's a it's a pretty lengthy article, but there there's lots of nuggets in there. So we encourage our viewers and listeners to to go find that on either um, Anshul's uh, feed or my feed. But let's move to your first topic this week, and um, I saw a little bit of this as well. You want to talk about Huawei's earnings and some some uh, recent DOJ uh, charges against the uh, Chinese infrastructure provider. So yeah, um, the clarification they they announced earnings um and actually earnings were better than expected mm -hmm. um basically uh their earnings for the first nine months of this year declined 2.2 percent from last year um which isn't a huge decline when you look at other declines that are happening uh in fact if you look at the chinese smartphone market based on canalysis research um their data says the chinese market shrunk 11 percent this quarter so the fact that they only declined 2.2% compared to last year is actually a win, I think. Yeah. Um, and also they said that they were actually, uh, their profit margin for the first nine months of the year was 6.1%, um, which is a decline from the previous year, but um, they're actually able to show third quarter revenue rising 6.5%. So they're yeah. actually having re revenue starting to rebound a little bit. And mm -hmm. apparently that has to do with infrastructure. Um not necessarily devices, but yeah. I was looking at um, Canalis's smartphone volume and market share in China, and it shows Huawei's market share is starting to rebound as well on smartphones. Oh. So um, it seems like the worst days for Huawei are behind them. Mm -hmm. um, that said, um, it's unclear how they will be able to compete with their, with their other Chinese competitors in China and abroad, um, especially on the smartphone side. But the other part of that story, which I think is a much bigger problem for Huawei um, within the U.S. and abroad, is that two Chinese intelligence officers were charged with obstructing the DOJ's prosecution. Um, and they were trying to um, basically pay uh, a, a U.S. government employee a total of $61,000 in Bitcoin uh, for confidential information about the DOJ's pending prosecution of Huawei. So um, it does not look good uh, for Huawei because that kind of um, invalidates the the um, the whole thing that Huawei is not connected to the Chinese government. Um, I, do, I don't necessarily see the US um, spy agencies like the CIA trying to uh, do the same thing for say a Cisco or a, uh, an Intel. Um, so, you know, industrial espionage um, and bribing, you know, uh, officials seems like a very uh, contrary to what the Chinese government claims they are. Yeah. Um, but in general, it's just not a really good look for Huawei or, or the Chinese government. And I think it just further, you know, adds another nail to the Huawei coffin in a lot of countries. Yeah, you know, so they're going to have to look for their growth uh, in their in their core Asian markets for sure. And um, this doesn't doesn't look good for them longer term. And it probably does, you know, slam the door shut a door that was probably already closed. But to your point, um, from an earnings perspective, it seems like they're stabilizing the, uh, the bleeding a little bit there. Um, and I didn't I didn't dive into it, but I suspect that some of that rebound might also be uh, within uh, or contributed to um, what they're doing within the enterprise networking space as well. So as they've had to sort of retrench their, um, 
you know, their infrastructure business and to a certain extent their, um, their end-device business, I think that's probably where they're, they're seeing some pickup there. It's just sort of a, a hypothesis that I'll throw out there. But, well, let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about DISH and um, their claim that they're, um, that they're less than 30% of the U.S. population coverage with their 5G standalone network. And so we've talked about this in the past. So they were staring down um, at, a, at a very, very uh, potentially big fine uh, by not meeting their 20% coverage requirements. So um, th this is interesting because they've only moved the coverage needle five percentage points since that time. And um, it was actually Sumeric uh, wrote this article. What's happening, I think, uh, is that Wall Street is uh, is getting a little bit nervous and they're wondering you know how well is dishes you know overall deployment going i mean it seems like everyone under the sun is involved with them they're leaning into um you know open ran and um, disaggregation and cloudification uh to speed their their greenfield network deployment but it seems like things are still sort of off track but would love to get your uh your insights i think you know when you look at what's going on with DISH. Um, I think it, it's a difficult situation because, you know, building a new network is always a challenge. Oh yeah. Um, we saw that with Rakuten as well, right? So- Right, there's growing uh, pains. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is they are adding a thousand towers per month. I read um, that. I thought that was interesting because that that's a lot, I mean, if they're adding a thousand towers a month, man, their their coverage number should be moving a lot a lot greater, wouldn't you think? Yes, but I think a lot of those towers are probably also in places where they already have towers, yeah. improving coverage because you know you kind of want to build a network that's good in fewer places first, and you want to build a network that's bad everywhere. Um, so that's kind of the I think the thought process is you want to. We want to build a network that's dense enough that a user can actually use it um, in a way that's a good experience that you can keep that customer. Um, I think a good example of that is actually Sprint. Um, I think they built a, a a bad network in a lot of places. Um, yeah. And as a result, they they lost a lot of customers and they were hemorrhaging customers, you know, near the end at, at an insane rate. Right. Um, and I think that when you look at what's, what they're trying to do, I, I think, I think they should be given some more wiggle room, honestly. Yeah. Um, but but deadlines are deadlines, and I think um, they they need to, um, you know, continue down this path. But I I guess if if they were able to beat their twenty five percent requirement, um, you know, they're they're gonna have to continue to move those uh, the needle. Um, and I think I think they may need some more investment. Um, I find that when these these big capital um, expenditures exist, um, you know, capital having capital to to build capital um, is is very important. And I feel like Dish could probably use some infusion, but I also feel like that some of that may come from the fact that the way Dish operates, yeah, uh, they don't necessarily want to have other investors. Um, partake in this, but I think that might be what's necessary to get growth where it needs to be. Yeah, um, we'll see. Yeah, you know, and then you know, we've talked about rand sharing in Europe and on prior podcasts, and you know, I don't know if they could find someone else, you know, you know, to do that with, but you know, some, you know, some operators in Europe, they're they're recognizing that, 
just to your point, you know, the, the CapEx and the OpEx layout to do all this is, is quite, it's quite massive. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Dish may have to get creative here to, to accelerate it, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, moving, moving the needle only 5% in coverage over a four month period doesn't, doesn't really bode well, but uh, we'll keep our eyes open and our ears open as well. And uh, report back maybe on a future podcast there, but let me move, to, uh, let's well, actually, let's move to your second topic. You want to talk about Starlink and I did catch this news as well. Um, they're considering capping user bandwidth, right? Yeah. So this is a story from uh, PC Mag. Basically, they went through the service plan, the new service plan agreement, and it goes, it adds new language that incorporates a monthly allocation of priority access, which is yeah. uh, a very uh, roundabout way of saying data cap. Yeah. Well, it's basically what, what Verizon and AT&T offer if you go over your data cap, right? They yeah. just drop you down to a to very low speed, right? Um, so that's kind of what, what you're seeing here. Um, I think this is something that many of us probably expected was inevitable with time um, as as their user base started to grow. Yeah. Realistically, I think satellite has a future. I just think that it will be great as a component carrier or as a an emergency service layer. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not necessarily as a primary use case. But I do think there are a lot of people out there who can benefit from having you know, a technology like Starlink in places where there just isn't any service whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not here to really cheer that, you know, Starlink has data caps because I think data caps suck. Yeah. But um, I also think that like maybe Starlink is starting to come a little bit more towards reality, maybe a little towards Earth. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't resist. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think this is something that, that you know, we're going to have lots more low earth orbit um, constellations coming up. And yeah. I think I think LEO is a good technology to have, uh, you know, in a quiver of many others when it comes to 5G. I agree. And, you know, it's, you know, I've sort of spoken, um, you know, to the digital divide on, on prior podcasts and I'm working on my first book, um, The Human Network, where I'll be traveling around the world next year, kind of got put on hold of the pandemic. But um, certainly, you know, satellite is going to be an element. You know, when I recently spent time with John Stanky uh, with uh, AT&T, um, he, you know, we, we spoke pretty candidly together about satellite role and all of that. And it's definitely going to be an element, maybe not the save all be all. But, you know, I think the other challenge with Starlink and potentially they're doing this is that there have you know, been reports of very inconsistent, you know, download and upload speeds. And so to take a service that's been inconsistent from a performance standpoint and then layer into that, you know, some, some throttling, um, that might serve to stall new subscribership. But, you know, you know, time will tell, you know, but, you know, to your point, you know, Leo will be an important sort of element in the overall, you know, uh, ability to bridge digital divide. But. There are other there are other elements there too. Uh, we've talked about fixed wireless access on a, you know a number of different occasions. But let me move to my third and final topic this week, and um, I want to talk about the NFL and how they're leaning into private cellular networking. And it's not about the fan experience. So um, you and I have talked in the past. You know, millimeter wave um, is you know it's ideally suited for a venue. 
Um, you've got to densify it, but it's going to provide, you know, uh, the right level of performance, you know, given just the profile of the spectrum. Um, and then I think I've spoken on prior podcasts as well about how CBRS is also entering into the venue arena. And uh, that's interesting, you know, given, um, you know, the profile um, at 3.5 gigahertz. Um, but what's interesting, I, this was a, an article, um, I believe Mike Dano published this week on Light Reading. What the NFL uh, is, uh, is filing with the SEC is the ability to, to continue to use um, in-stadium coach-to-coach communication systems that run mm-hmm. in that CBRS spectrum band. And, um, you know, this isn't surprising. I mean, it's a, it's a logical use case. You and I had Dave Wright on um, one of our prior podcasts and I think we went into a little bit of detail about where they're seeing deployments and venues, but then you're also going to see, you know, for example, uh, the millimeter wave deployments, like, um, you know, the, the $120 million investment that Verizon made outfit uh, SoFi Stadium and the Hollywood Park area with 5G network equipment. Uh, and that was to support the Super Bowl this year. So um, it's interesting to see kind of, um, the amalgam of you know both midband and, and millimeter wave deployment in stadiums, but I don't know if you caught this uh, th- this uh, this article from Mike. But uh, any any in- additional insights you want to add? I did not catch it, but I do think it's interesting. Um, it's interesting because we're seeing more and more stadiums starting to really leverage private five G networking. Yeah, I mean I, I'm not sure this is a five G deployment, um, but it sounds like it's. It might be 4G at this point. Maybe it's LTE, yeah. It's LTE with um, with a path to get to 5G, and it's probably you know a Voner, you know, voice over NR. And that would be that would be extremely high quality, right? So, right. Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves. You know, I've been watching all of the wireless innovations that are happening in the sports space, right? Like, you know, we we when we were at the T-Mobile event, they talked about the MLB, yeah. um, and they were also talking about using 5g for uh, red bull and working really closely with them on that so it mm-hmm. seems like wire and you know pitchcom is a thing now for for baseball yeah. so it really seems like wireless technologies are starting to get embraced within different sports leagues and you know i, I think it totally makes sense for you know the 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 different coaches and, and their quarterbacks to be able to communicate with each other clearly yeah uh, you know obviously there's a lot of vo- you know voice and and interference issues and yeah. uh, noise that can interfere with the communications. But as long as the the link itself is strong, I think that's really valuable. And there's so much interference in these stadiums already that, you know, yeah. having a solid, you know, spectrum that you can rely on that's dedicated to this use case, I think is a great thing. And hopefully, you know, it results in, in better communications from the coaches, maybe even the refs being able to communicate with each other better. Yeah. we don't even know what's going on there um, but yeah it, it sounds like a, a you know a, an overall positive experience yeah it does yeah i was i was gonna say something funny about the big 12 referee uh referee crews and how terrible they are this year I, I don't think that's based on a lack of communication i think they all need new prescription glasses but i'm <laughs> glad i'm glad that you that you pointed out you know the 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 issues with interference so yeah so you have you have huge um contention, RF contention, because a lot of these new stadiums are basically Faraday cages. And then mm-hmm. um, the Wi-Fi is, is suspect as well because it becomes oversubscribed, you know, really, really quickly. Instantaneously. It's, yeah. And so 
you need, you know, you need a dedicated communication channel, you know, for, you know, for, you know, for the coaches to actually, you know, uh, do their job, you know, in these professional sports. And even, I would even argue even at the collegiate level as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's another, it's another cool use case and demonstration for, um, for what's basically mid-band spectrum deployment and venues. But let's move to your third and final topic. And you want to talk about um, FCC and some rulings uh, around uh, C-band. We're talking about C-band again. Yeah, we are. Here we go. <laughs> and the acting FAA administrator, Billy Nolan, says that the agency wants the FCC to mandate voluntary mitigations that AT&T and Verizon agreed to earlier this year and mandated for 19 other sm smaller telecoms and other spectrum holders to do that as well. So this is the FAA asking the FCC oh, okay. to do this. Okay. So it's the FCC that, that that would have to implement it, but the FAA wants them to do it. Okay. Um, and they're saying that if they don't have the FCC mandate these mitigations, the FAA would be forced to take immediate steps to ensure the safety of the traveling public, raising the likelihood of flight disruptions across the United uh. States. So we're basically back where we started. <laughs> I mean, because at least they're, at least they're talking, and they're not waiting until New Year's Eve to throw a hail mary at the operators. And I, I just, I'm losing my mind because, <laughs> you know, he said that. The, the aviation industry is aggressively retrofitting the current U.S. domestic international fleets that fly in the United States with these filters, but added that data indicates even retrofitting aircraft would be susceptible to interference if the report and order is not modified, yeah. resulting so is, in renewed concerns about unsafe interference. Yeah, so this is basically their their request to, to, to make the temporary restrictions permanent, right? Yeah. And, and and this Reuters article says that it remains unclear if the four-member FCC, which we still don't have a fifth member because um, I'm not going to mention which party will not will not pass a fifth member. Um, and uh, if we have a four-member panel, things and, the, and it's split 2-2, two, two, nothing gets passed. There's no tiebreaker, yeah. Um, and they're saying that they don't know if they can even have the authority to retroactively impose conditions on companies that purchase the spectrum at auction um, and if it would have, if they would even have the votes to make the changes. So yeah. um, FAA has shrunk these zones around airports where Verizon AT&T can't fully use towers, yeah, but Verizon right. said that the June agreement would allow it to lift the voluntary limitations on their 5G network deployment around airports in a staged approach. So yeah. um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of trying to understand uh, why we haven't resolved this issue. Yeah. Um, because the NTIA, FAA, and FCC still need to figure these things out. But it, this feels somewhat political, yeah. um, again. And it feels like the FAA is kind of acting on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I struggle with it because they still haven't provided any real data that Concrete. proves that there is interference or even said that they're doing active testing to ver verify that this is a necessary mitigation. Yeah. You know, um, it's definitely affecting my, the performance on my AT&T uh, device when I fly through DFW airport, because that's apparently one of the exclusion zones. 
And um, my service is actually at times it's, it's dropped uh, below LTE performance. So they need to get their act together and figure this out. It's, you know, it's uh, what's the definition of insanity, repeating the same thing, expecting a different outcome. <laughs> but there was, I was a little encouraged. Um, I, you know, I shared some insights on our last podcast uh, about the 5G Americas um, analyst event that you and I attended. And um, there was a gentleman, general counsel from the FCC. Uh, we're hoping to have him on a future podcast. So Anshul and I are still working on that. But he provided some insight that uh, there is there is greatly, dramatically improved cro uh, cross-cooperation between these different agencies, but we're sort of back to square one here. So we'll, it feels like it. we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But hey, buddy, it's been another great podcast. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope, we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone would like to reach out, reach out to us to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whale Town Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again 